from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. The beat goes on. Bank of America's earnings show a solid consumer, but rate cut clouds are gathering. Off balance, Facebook is back on Capitol Hill after Tuesday's lashing for cryptocurrency Libra. And read my mind, Elon Musk's latest venture involves planting a chip in your brain. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Once again, to first move a huge tech focus in the show again today. And of course, earnings. Bank of America just out. Netflix after the bell as well. And I can tell you, stranger things have happened. It does look like we've got a pretty flat open for stock markets here in the US. Following yesterday's pullback, there was a decidedly summer feel yesterday. I have to say, sideways trading, light volumes, right up until the moment President Trump warned that a US-China trade deal is still a long way off. And he threatened more tariffs. Bottom line, guys, trade still matters. And it's having an impact on global economic data. Take a look at over at Singapore. Non-oil exports plunging more than 17% year-on-year in June. That was the biggest drop in six years. Export-oriented economy, remember this. So expect, I think, more easing from the central bank there. Just one of the many global central banks making dovish noises right now, including, of course, Fed Chair Jay Powell reiterating yesterday that the international outlook look remains a key concern. Another sign that despite some of the recent stronger data here in the US, the Fed is set to cut rates in July. And he wasn't alone actually yesterday. The Chicago Fed president hinting two rate cuts might be necessary this year. The bank also warning, of course, that this will mean lower profits and perhaps less lending to the real economy. Bank of America, meanwhile, though, having a pretty solid quarter despite the risks. Let's get to the drivers and those numbers. Matt Egan joins me now. Matt, once again, strengthen the U.S. consumer. It was the retail bank here that was the real outperformer for Bank of America. Right, Julia. It, you know, Bank of America really painted a very optimistic picture about the economy, despite all of this talk about a slowdown and Fed rate cuts. And as you mentioned, it's really about the consumer. Bank of America's consumer bank profits were up solidly. They reported growth in loans, in deposits. CEO Brian Moynihan said all of this points to a steadily growing economy and healthy consumer trends really across the board, which really just with what he told me last month when we interviewed him, and, and he said that he didn't really think that a recession was in the cards. It also supports those strong retail sales uh, numbers that we saw for the United States for the month of June that were reported yesterday. And, you know, it's not just about the consumer, though. Bank of America reported healthy numbers when it comes to businesses as well. It said that corporate lending and corporate leasing rose. Um, but like the other big banks, uh, one of the concerns continues to be market. Markets. Uh, Bank of America's global markets profit fell 7%. Equity trading volume was down 13%. Fixed income off by 8%. So, Julia, you know, this looks like another example of a bank that is benefiting from the real economy, but, you know, it's being held back a, a bit by the market forces. 
Yeah, the muted trading activity that we're seeing from clients warning concerns among them, of course, about what kind of trading environment we're going to have going forward, offset by businesses and consumers that continue to show some strength here. Another point I know that you discussed with him when you interviewed him as well, but also that we saw in these numbers, is the ability to make profits here, the net interest income. Another key feature of all of these bank earnings with banks saying, look, actually, it's simply going to get tougher to make money here as rates come down. That's right, Julia. So Bank of America's net interest income actually increased year over year, but it was down from the previous quarter. And that is, of course, because interest rates have already fallen very sharply due to the Fed's really dramatic pivot from very hawkish to very dovish. And those rates could continue to come down or at least stay low because the Fed is signaling that it may, in fact, lower interest rates. And so the problem for banks is that it's going to hurt their margins. Um, and we've seen all these different banks, including uh, Citi and JP Morgan, which lowered its net interest uh, income outlook yesterday. They're all talking about this as a potential headwind. So it's another interesting factor that uh, the Fed, while it's trying to actually support the real economy by lowering rates, it, it is going to potentially dent bank profitability, Julia. Yeah, absolutely. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that on Bank's Watch for us this week. All right, let's move on to our next driver, Amazon, getting hit by another EU probe. This time, looking at how it uses other retailers' data. Haddis Gold is on this story. So, Haddis, what we're looking at here is how Amazon operates both as a retailer itself, but also as a host for other retailers. And, and does it use those that data and that advantage um, to serve its own purposes. Talk us through this. That's a question the European Commission plans to probe in this investigation, this antitrust investigation. And it comes actually towards the end of Marguerite Vestager, the uh, competition chief of the European Commission, the end of her five-year term. But it's it's been a probe that's been long expected. Vestager has been talking about it for some time, but now it is officially launched. And as you noted, they will be looking into how Amazon both is the marketplace and the retailer because it sells its own products on Amazon, but then it's also the place for third-party independent sellers to sell their products. And the question question is whether Amazon is inappropriately using some of the data from those third-party independent sellers, really their competitors, that's somehow being used to an unfair advantage. This is everything like the buy box, which is the box that you might see on your Amazon search results that automatically that you can click on it and puts the product into your cart without you having to go through the product page. Now, I want to read a bit of what Vestager said today in the announcement. She said, we need to ensure that large online platforms don't eliminate these benefits through anti-competitive behavior. She said, I've therefore decided to take a very close look at Amazon's business practices and its dual role as marketplace and retailer to assess its compliance with the EU competition rules. Now, this could be one of the biggest antitrust uh, competitive investigations into Amazon that we've seen so far. Uh, the Amazon said in response, we will cooperate fully with the European Commission and continue working hard to support businesses of all sizes and help them grow. Now, this obviously comes on the heels of a lot of action we're seeing in the sort of regulate big tech space. We've got the hearings going on in Washington. We've got a lot of investigations and potential, for example, digital taxes being talked about here in Europe. But it's clear it's not clear how long this probe will take. They actually said that there's no specific deadline. But if Amazon is found to be violating any of these competition rules in the European Union, they could be liable for up to 10% of their global revenues in a fine. And if you look at the 2018 revenues for Amazon, that could be around $23 billion of a fine, Julia. 
Yeah, I mean, what you've got to prove here ultimately is that the consumer is being hurt here. And even Vestager agreed that, look, this gave us better choices. It brought prices down for consumers. The question is, now given the sheer scale and the power that Amazon has, is that working in reverse? And this is the question that we're asking here. I mean, I know Amazon, the pushback here would be, look, if we look at the United States, fine, they've got, what, around 40% of the e-commerce market share here, but it's less than 5% of overall commerce. The question is, is that a powerful enough argument, Hadass? What about in the United States? Because when we were looking at those hearings yesterday, what we heard in Congress was them zoning in on Amazon of all the big techs and asking exactly the same questions here that the EU's asking. Right. And well, that's the argument that we heard from big tech in those hearings yesterday in Washington was they're saying, yes, we do have a lot of power, but our competitors are especially China. And that they were trying to get China really into the conversation yesterday in Washington to sort of alert to the politicians that, look, you might want to be monitoring us. But keep in mind who we're competing against. We're competing against a lot of these big websites from China that a lot of people don't think about. But they are huge, huge platforms in those other countries. But the I do have to say the conversation in terms of investment investigating and regulating big tech, it's much further along here in Europe than it is in Washington. We are seeing some action in Washington, like those hearings we're seeing this week. But in terms of actual action yet, actual announced probes, we are not quite there yet. We might get there because we know that the FTC and the DOJ in Washington have sort of split up uh, the looking into all the different fangs, the Facebook, Apples, Amazons, uh, as they're investigating possible antitrust violations. But we haven't seen anything publicly from that yet. We might be seeing uh, the, the politicians yesterday in Washington said that at the end of some of these hearings, at the end of this top-to-bottom probe of tech, we might see some new legislation come out. But they are all looking at Europe and seeing what Europe is doing and these fines that Europe is starting to put out to kind of see what the roadmap might look like. Absolutely. Europe definitely on the front foot on this, uh, in this regard. Hannes Gold, thank you for that. All right, next one. Not the only company getting lashed yesterday in Congress. Facebook, of course, faces further hearings today on Capitol Hill. Their cryptocurrency, Libra, got a pretty hostile reception yesterday. Uh, Claire Sebastian has been tracking this story for us. Claire, my, my favorite quote was from the Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown. He compared Facebook to a, quote, toddler who has gotten his hands on a book of matches. Ouch. Yeah, it was a really frosty reception, Julia. You know, this really uh, felt like more of a dressing down in parts than an actual hearing. Clearly, the big takeaway is just how little Congress trusts Facebook. Sometimes it wasn't even about Libra that they were dressing them down. But, you know, really, this is something that unites politicians on both sides of the aisle. I want to play you some of the, the more colorful moments here. Facebook is dangerous. Now, Facebook might not intend to be dangerous, but surely they don't respect the power of the technologies they are playing with, like a toddler who has gotten his hands on a book of matches. Facebook has burned down the house over and over and called every arson a learning experience. Isn't it true, I really want your opinion, that, that Facebook has chosen to advance a set of values in which... Uh, Truthful, truthful reporting has been display has been displaced by um, flagrant displays of bull. I, I don't know how to answer that question. Senator. Okay. 
So Julia, some colourful language there from Senator John Kennedy. And clearly you can see they veered off topic on occasion. But Facebook's David Marcus, who's the head of the Calibra unit, which is the, the unit that's going to build a digital wallet to, to use the Libra currency, he said repeatedly, look, this isn't just about trusting Facebook. There are 28 founding members, all of which are going to have equal power. He said that Facebook are going to keep the financial data that they have in the Calibra uh, system separate from their social media apps. And he did promise that they're not going to launch this project until all of the regulatory concerns have been addressed. But look, he heads to the House today. He's going to be in front of the House Financial Services Committee. I think if possible, that reception might be even frostier. Maxine Waters, the chair of that committee, uh, is advancing draft le legislation that would try to keep big tech out of finance altogether. So it'll certainly be interesting to see what happens there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I go back to what Carly Fiorina said to us yesterday. This is inviting a level of scrutiny at Facebook that the company simply didn't need at this moment. But, um, Claire, I, I totally hear exactly what you're saying here. I just wonder whether a lot of the pushback that we got was about Facebook and Facebook's involvement in something like this, or pushback more broadly on cryptocurrencies themselves. Because I think if I was an Ether or a Bitcoin investor here, I'd be looking at this and going, wow, the sentiment right now in D.C. for this kind of opportunity is um, negative, to say the least. That definitely, Julia, and we've seen that reflected in the price of, of Bitcoin and, and various other cryptocurrencies, particularly overnight. Bitcoin uh, down below $10,000 now. It's lost about uh, a quarter of its value in, in the last week. I think it was interesting because when Libra was first announced, uh, there were a lot of people who, who were you know, diehard fans of Bitcoin who were really happy about this. They thought it, it would bring this, this finally into the mainstream. It might bring together some of the patchwork uh, of regulation that we already have into something more comprehensive. I think now that the, the publicity has become so negative there are concerns but look they do want Libra to get off the ground because of that regulation and because if you go even deeper into the diehard Bitcoin community there are those who feel that Libra is really essentially a useful detour that will will eventually bring people back to Bitcoin because of the backlash against Facebook and because Libra isn't really as, as Bitcoiny as Bitcoin is because of the the backing by Facebook it's seen as less decentralized uh, so it's so kind of a nuanced view of it from the the crypto community but we are seeing those prices fall yeah, I'm sure some people will be uh, scooping them up at these levels, but uh, we shall see. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, my favorite story of the day now. In the battle of man versus machine, Elon Musk sees a potential way to win merging man with machine. He's unveiled bulk plans to connect our brains with our devices and a steward has the lucky prize of reporting on this story for us today. I mean, the details on this are pretty astonishing. It's not specifically new science, but Elon Musk just makes several dramatic advances. Talk us through the science here. Oh, it's easy, the science. Yeah, like all Elon Musk uh, announcements, this one hurts my brain thinking about the possibilities, Julia. Now, in terms of the science itself, as you said, the technology isn't necessarily new. That's what scientists were taking to Twitter and saying last night. But the device itself is cutting edge. What it is, is a thread-like device, thinner than a human hair. It gets inserted through a skull. And on it are thousands of electrodes which monitor brain neurons and transmit that data back. That means because it's so thin, it's much less invasive than similar procedures at the moment. Plus, what's really different about this company and the fact that Elon Musk has backed it is that its ambitions are far beyond medicine, for instance, far beyond just helping someone who can't speak to communicate. They are looking to create symbiosis with artificial intelligence to superpower a healthy human brain. And, you know, this is something that Elon Musk has discussed before, his fear of AI, which he once called humanity's biggest existential threat. Take a listen to what he said last night. 
I think even in a benign AI scenario, we will be left behind. Um, and so and hopefully it is a benign scenario. Um, but I think with um, a high bandwidth brain machine interface, I think we can actually go along for the ride. Um, and we can effectively have the option of merging with AI. So as robots become more human-like, we can become perhaps more robot-like. Julia? I have to say, when I was reading the story, I was imagining downloading a language overnight or maybe even studying a degree <laughs> overnight. This would be so great. Um, testing on humans next year, according to Elon Musk. Elon Musk timescale well, here, admittedly. Exactly. So we discovered last night in the Q&A that they've already tested this on a monkey. And I will quote Elon Musk here so I don't get it wrong. Uh, they have be the monkey was able to control the computer with his brain, just FYI. Next up, human trials. They need to get that through the FDA. That could be a pretty big hurdle uh, to jump. And then, of course, even if they get the technology and they can superpower a human brain and do all the things that we'd like it to do, what about consent? What about equality? What about privacy? It raises a whole host of issues. What if CNN implants a chip into your brain, Julia, and you have real-time stock market data and they don't give me one? It just wouldn't be fair. <laughs> we don't need that kind of technology. We're all over it, Dana Stewart. Come on. <laughs> um, to be fair, and I just want to make one point. The president of the company that's doing this, Neuralink, basically said, look, this is not about hype. This is about recruitment. We want more scientists coming in to help us work on this. So I will make that point. But um, for now, Anna, we'll continue to look at the boards and uh, do the work. <laughs> yeah. Stuart. Good job. Thank you for that. All right. Right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. In Washington, the House of Representatives has voted to officially condemn Donald Trump's racist tweets targeting four Democratic congresswomen of color. All Democrats voted yes, but only four Republicans and one independent supported the measure. President Trump says he doesn't have a racist bone in his body. In Sudan, the opposition and the military have signed a preliminary political agreement. It stipulates the military will rule for the next 21 months and then civilians take over for another 18, after which the transition period will end. The agreement comes after months of tensions between the military and civilians. Mexican drug lord El Chapo is to be sentenced in New York later today. He was convicted in February of all 10 charges against him. They included engaging in a continuing criminal enterprise and drug trafficking. U.S. prosecutors are seeking a life sentence. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but still to come, debt deal or no deal. The clock is ticking in D.C. to raise the debt ceiling as another U.S. government shutdown looms. And we have liftoff. We'll talk to one company that took the moon landing to infinity and beyond. That's coming up on First Move. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. Still looking at a pretty flattish open for U.S. markets today after a bit of a pullback yesterday amid concerning trade headlines from the president, of course, a long way to go to get a trade deal. Also keeping an eye on the banks, of course, this week. Bank of America shares set to open a touch lower in the session, reporting record profits for the quarter, of course, but broader concerns about bank profitability amid lower rates, of course, with the Federal Reserve in focus. Let's talk this through. Joining us now, Scott Minard. He's the Global Chief Investment Officer at Guggenheim Partners. Scott, fantastic to have you on the show. Oh, Julia, it's always fun. So you're anticipating the Fed cuts rates by 25 basis points, a quarter of a percent right. in July. July. But probably, three times this year. Probably a couple of more times. I, I think that, look, 
The chairman made it very clear that he is concerned about the prospects of recession. Right. And so he's jumped into this cutting rates thing by both feet. Now, the risk to my forecast is the risk we faced back in December, which was if we remember that December meeting, everything was on autopilot. Yeah. And, then, and then suddenly we reversed course. So, you know, I can only be as certain as, you know, as Powell is. But uh, right now he's sending signals and the market's pricing for three rate cuts. If they don't give the market what it expects, a disappointment, then they're basically, you know, running the risk that they're they're going to increase the probability of recession if they don't give it to them. Yeah, I mean, you make such a great point here as well about the the sort of ping pong that we've played with the Federal Reserve here. Is the bar now really high to disappoint the market or at least to confuse the market again, given, as you said, we have gone from being on autopilot as far as monetary policy is concerned to being, OK, now we're having insurance cuts here to, to prevent a broader slowdown? Well, you know, it seems, at least for the chairman, the bar is pretty low. That is that, you know, he's willing to to change his mind. And look, to, to his defense, he'd say, you know, I, I'm Things looking at the data and things change and I'm being flexible. The reality is when you look at the data and what we would have expected in December for the data to be playing out this year with continued rate cuts, it's playing out just as we expect. Inflation is starting to accelerate. The economy is doing just fine. Uh, Europe is sort of bouncing off the bottom here. It seems like we're going to get stimulus there. You mean the trade war was always on the radar screen, but uh, you know China's going to do whatever it has to do to avoid a recession. So the bottom line is the liquidity spigots are on full force around the world, and I think we're uh, in for some interesting uh, times ahead. You know, it's interesting. The president warned again yesterday that a trade deal still a long way away could slap China with yet more tariffs on the additional $300 billion here. I mean, you could argue, a cynic could argue here that there's opportunity here for the president to hold off on signing a trade deal, get those three cuts from the Federal Reserve, then sign a trade deal and... You know, you've got maximum stimulus in the monetary side, and and some of the uncertainty goes way longer term. Well, you know, it's very, it's interesting Sorry, if you cynical. thought if you thought that the president really wanted the Fed to cut rates, which he did. He's played this brilliantly. Yes, he has. Uh, now, did he do it intentionally? I don't know. But uh, he, he's basically forced the hand of the Fed. And, uh, you know, I think the president may be a bit smarter than we give him credit for. So you've been warning that we could touch your recession indicators, at least. Your, you know, your equity model has suggested that we could see the December lows Again. before the end of the year. But right. you've also said we could see 3,500 in the S&P 500. How does that play out, given everything that you've just said? Well, you know, it's really interesting. The the allegory for what we're going through today yes. is is the 1998 experience, and that is, you know, there was there were uh, forces overseas in Asia that caused the Fed to reduce rates by 75 basis points. The stock market took off, and you know, liquidity just pushed risk assets higher. So, you know, I've I've always felt this was a risk that we were going to do this, but. The downside to that is, as we all know, in, in the 98 experience, the follow-on was, was the crash in the market that came later. And so, you know, are we just setting ourselves up for a run-up in stocks that ultimately will get reversed and more? Uh, you know, when the Fed ultimately, if it is successful, has to turn around and start increasing rates again. And
And so, you know, I, I think the Fed would like that. I mean, I don't think they want the crash in the market prices, but I think they'd like to get the economy to to essentially overheat a bit more uh-huh. and then then come back in and have to raise rates so they can get further away from the zero bound. All right. We've got the market open next. We're going to continue this conversation and I'll be asking you what investors should be doing in order to, to handle that kind of situation. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good <laughs> the reaction. Tough, the, tough <laughs> the market opens next. Scott Miner back with us very shortly. Stay with us. First move on Wednesday's opening bell here at the New York Stock Exchange. Pretty much unchanged for stocks right now. Still trading very close to those record highs, of course. So a bit of a pause in light of all the earnings that we've got coming this week and next makes sense here, I think. We're also going to get the Fed's beige book, which will give us a sense of how the trade impact is uh, having on regional areas around the United States, too. So we'll certainly be watching out for that, particularly given Powell and the focus ahead of those rate cuts. Also keeping an eye on what's going on in the energy markets. Take a look at oil prices right now. We are seeing it stabilization after that sharp drop in Tuesday's session. Brent trading at that $65 a barrel level. U.S. crude trading around $58 a barrel. John Terrace joins us now. John, a bit of confusion, I think, going on in the oil markets. Comments yesterday sure. that perhaps there's progress at least heading towards talks between the United States and Iran, but the Iranians suggested that they weren't willing to compromise on uh, their ballistic missiles. So uh, what are you hearing, John? Because you're always the man in the know on these things. Well, on two fronts, I think the Trump administration has uh, jumped the gun here, both on China willing to negotiate uh, and the same thing could be said about Iran. But I think the message coming from Mike Pompeo, the secretary of state and also President Trump in that cabinet meeting was we're willing to sit around the negotiating table uh, if ballistic missiles are part of the equation. And then we had Foreign Minister Zarif, as you're suggesting, Julia, uh, pull cold water on that uh, concept. Now, a senior Gulf source was just telling me over the last three or four days, uh, they don't want the U.S. to push Iran too far to have these unintended consequences and then stumbling into conflict. And that's the biggest worry. So we know a win-win would look like that both sides put down their guns, sit down at the table and see if they can find common ground. A no-win, of course, is that you have an accidental conflict. And that's what the Gulf neighbors there in the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, clearly do not want to see. But we know what risk means to the markets, Julia. The first hint of a potential compromise, we have a sell-off of 3 to 4%. When we had those tanker attacks uh, taking place around Fujairah, we saw spikes up of 4 to 5% or when the, the pumping station in Saudi Arabia was hit. Uh, also, later in the day, we should take a look at how deep the inventories are in the United States and whether the trade tensions in China and the slowdown we're seeing outside the United States is also going to keep the inventories very high and keep downward pressure on prices. But we see the spike up about one to one and a half percent with now the talks with Iran and the U.S. not proceeding, at least in the latest hours that we've been talking. Yeah, I mean, the fact that U.S. producers are going gangbusters here, that the concern about demand going forward between the U.S. and China really is the dominant theme. But Interesting to hear the Iranian oil minister saying, irrespective of what's going on, that those guys are going to be pretty militant about providing exports to nations. Talk me through this, because this was um, pretty punchy from him, too. Yeah, you know, we had that interview with uh, Minister Bijan Zangane at, at OPEC, and he took a fairly firm line. 
I would suggest this is a much tougher line because he was speaking before yeah. the Iranian parliament. Now, there's some domestic issues here. Uh, he's seen as a reformer back at home, so he has to kind of line up with those from the Revolutionary uh, Guard and the Supreme Leader fighting the national cause. He's not giving any clues on where these exports are going, but one has to think that both Russia and China are supporting the cause. Now, I was looking at the latest OPEC report that just came out this week, uh, suggesting that their production dropped another 142,000 barrels last month. But those aren't official reports from Iran, but from a collection of secondary sources. It's costing them $50 billion a year in exports, but it's also interesting, Julia, the harder line comes because their budget now requires just 30% from oil revenues. And there's no reason to negotiate while President Trump's in an election cycle. They would rather wait. There's no advantage of them sitting at the bargaining table. So they're tightening their belts. And I think that's the harder line we hear from the oil minister Zangane today. Yeah, fascinating. John Defterius, thank you so much for uh, making that nice clearer for us. <laughs> Lots to watch. All right, let's bring it back to markets now because uh, Scott Myland of Guggenheim is back with us and he's hiding his crystal ball behind his back. <laughs> <laughs> Continuing the discussion of what we were saying before about so many uncertainty points here and, and the calibration of policy, both I think from the White House but also on monetary policy and the monetary policy front here. How do investors approach these markets? Well, you know, Julia, the, the bottom of the market was 300% ago. Yeah. And you know, if you've been invested, you've made a fair amount of money. And you know, I've been advocating for the last year or so that people really should try to de-risk, move toward cash. Uh, I was in favor of you know bonds uh, for quite a while. I think with the run-up we've had in bonds now, yeah. uh, even they don't really look very attractive. So you know, it's, it's probably not a time to try to preserve capital. Capital preservation here. Right. The problem is that's a tough call to make and it's tough to say that to investors when they look at something like the S&P 500 and they say, wow, but that's up 18%. If I'd have been sitting on loads of cash, right. I would have missed well, lots of opportunity here. Well, you know, it's, look, I turned bullish in October of 2008. Yeah. I, was a, I was too early. The low didn't come until March of 09. But, you know, I tend to be early. Yeah. And so, you know, as I, uh, I've said many times, Baron von Rothschild, when asked the secret of his great wealth, said, I sold early. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, being early is not such a bad thing. I mean, if you look at where we've come in the market since January of 2017 to where we are today, it's, it's kind of not very interesting. And so you would have been better off owning bonds or things that people would have looked at and, and thought were unattractive. But today, I mean, but if we are in this liquidity-driven market, which I think we are from the central and banks. So many central banks now right. are, are making noises that they'll right. provide more stimulus. Right. And that's why, you know, if you, you, you probably see an opportunity in risk assets, but Candidly, I think precious metals, especially silver, probably for the next year or so is, is probably a great place to up the allocation for investors. Just be a bit more careful about how you're putting money to work here. That's right. If we go back to conversations that we've had this week, Krishna Mamani of Invesco said that the rate cuts that we've got coming from the Federal Reserve, the global liquidity, the stimulus support that we're talking about could extend the, the U.S. business cycle for several years. Can you can you imagine that happening? Well, I don't think so. I mean, we have a, a go back to the 90s again. In 95, there was a similar sort of rate cut experience like we're anticipating now. But we were well above full employment. Unemployment was much higher. There was a lot more slack in the economy. When we get to 1998, 
we were had a situation like today where we're beyond full employment. Uh, today, there are more job openings than there are workers. So, you know, the minute this thing starts to heat up again, and we and, and the Fed steps on the accelerator, uh, it, they've got limited runway before constraints start to show up in the system, and, and they'll probably get what they wish for, which is more inflation. And so, ultimately, because exactly. people are struggling to hire people. Well, that's right. And plus, we've had minimum wage increases. And uh, and then on top of that, you know, the people who are getting the most wage growth are the people who have the highest propensity to spend the money. And so I think it'll be very stimulative to the economy. Wow. The, the U.S. government might have to try and get more immigrants into the United States to take up all those jobs. Wouldn't that be an interesting well, policy an interesting choice? twist in the story. But, uh, you know, I've been an advocate of, of a, a more rational immigration policy yeah. uh, that we need we need foreign workers to come into the country to help the economy grow. Uh, you know, the president's plan to be you know very selective. Um, I, I don't think that's such a bad idea. But uh, at the same time, the place where we really need workers are people to build houses and to pick the crops. And these are low-skilled jobs that American workers don't really want and, and they don't pay very much. Yeah. So, of course, the argument is that drags down wage compensation. But if you talk to somebody who's uh, producing food in the Imperial Valley, the last thing they want to hear about is that they're going to drive the price of food up by, by increasing wages dramatically. That's an interesting conundrum. Final question here on the debt ceiling. Right. We have seven legislative days. We're going to talk about this later on in the show. How worried are you once again, particularly in light of the economic concerns that we're heading towards a shutdown? Or do you think both sides understand here that we don't want to have a repeat of earlier this year? Well, I, I never want to uh, uh, predict predict that the, the Washington will choose the path that doesn't have drama attached to it. But <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day, uh, politically, it's in nobody's interest to have a big fight about this thing. Uh, I think the plan, which is interesting now to talk about a two-year extension, uh, is it's clearly an attempt to avoid having to do this in an election year. So I, I think Washington, the odds are, I think they'll come up with a deal sooner than later. But you know, never count it out. This is yeah, a cliffhanger never of a say story. Never. Very quickly, a little birdie told me that somebody may have tapped you to join the Federal Reserve. Uh, well, they haven't asked me to join this week, so not formally. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so. But you'd be up for uh, the request. Look, at least. I, I think uh, it would be a great uh, honor and privilege to serve at the Fed. Uh, you know, I would have, I would say it would probably suit me more when I'm kind of 70 than like when I'm 25 as I am today. Exactly. So, so you know, time. maybe I should maybe I should wait a bit longer. <laughs> but you're in favor of rate cuts. That's probably the biggest advert. <laughs> Scott Miner, don't answer that. Of Google Home Partners. All right. I've been naughty now. I've taken too much time. Plenty more on First Move to come. Stay with us. the historic words spoken by Neil Armstrong 50 years ago as he became the first man to walk on the moon. Among the many technical wonders of Apollo 11's lunar landing, one of them is the crystal clear transmission of those words. That feat is down to the communications company Polly. It made Neil Armstrong's headset for the extraordinary mission. And joining me now is the company's CEO, Joe Burton. Joe, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you for having me. I'll never tire of, of listening to those words. Explain to 
me how this came about because you actually produced the headset that Neil Armstrong was wearing there and obviously we, we heard him speak those words as a result of. Well, you know, it's a really amazing story. Plantronics, now Poly, was started in the early 1960s by two airline pilots that wanted to have a better headset that was lightweight for long, long, uh, for long haul flights. Yes. As NASA was uh, developing the communication system for the astronauts, they contacted Plantronics, which is what Poly was called at the time, and asked about adapting our MS-50 headset uh, for use by the astronauts. And that's exactly what you did. In fact, you did it in 11 days and you made it fit the sort of Snoopy hats that we see them wearing, the black and white hats. Yeah, absolutely. So literally from the time that NASA contacted Plantronics to the time that we were actually back in Houston with the two microphones sticking out of the Snoopy hat was literally 11 days. I mean, the, the idea was brilliant, but the technology has been pretty revolutionary. I mean, it's versions of this is still being used today. It's it, indeed, literally, uh, the, the headset was the MS. 50 headset. Um, uh, one of the questions I actually asked our team the other day is when did we make the last uh, MS-50 headset? And the answer was last Wednesday. It's still in production <laughs> today. Wow. So if you go back, it wasn't just the Apollo missions. As pivotal as this was, of course, and we remember it, there were whole, a whole host of missions where this technology was used as well. And it, it was kind of revolutionary. There'd been issues with communication in in uh, in prior, prior flights. I mean, the Mercury Redstone Form mission, I believe, was actually where NASA realized we need to do something about this fast because we simply can't communicate properly. In, indeed, there was an early mission with Gus Grisham where yes. the uh, where the, the the door blew off the capsule. The capsule almost sunk and he almost drowned. Thankfully, he didn't. But they went looking for a lightweight communication system that could fit on the astronaut. Contacted a couple of companies, including Poly, and literally every. Every Gemini mission, every Apollo mission, the Space Lab and beyond were all done with uh, poly headsets. Tell me what you're wearing now. This is like the latest edition as the technology's improved because you're actually wearing one now. You, you, you know, in many ways, it is indeed a direct uh, derivative. A, a direct <laughs> derivative of that. This is actually the uh, poly, uh, the, the poly, G, uh, poly Voyager 6200 lightweight headset. Yeah. Hangs around your neck. I can put in one ear, two ears and so forth and just have crystal clear communications with my mobile phone, my desk phone, to literally yeah. anywhere in the world. In fact, we like to say we're on the same mission we were on there, creating instant, meaningful voice and video communications anywhere in the world or even to the moon and back. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, why do you think it's taken so long? I mean, it's fascinating. We're talking about the 50-year anniversary of, of Apollo 11's landing. Why do you think it's taken so long for us to sort of recapture the excitement, the investment, the, the sort of potential of, of space travel. Well, Why has it taken so long? Well, I have to say, as a technologist yeah. and, of course, a space buff, it's deeply frustrating yes. to me as well. It's terrible. Um, you know, I think that after several successful moon missions in a row that were um, very, very expensive, in today's dollars, each mission ran into the hundreds of billions of dollars. There was a real feeling that they had been there, done that. I'm just delighted that we're back in uh, public and private partnership now, really looking at uh, going back to space, the moon, and beyond finally. So it is the likes of Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, the guys that are launching
supporting the private companies now and working with NASA in many cases that actually are, are transforming this technology and the ability that we can to uh, to sort of go back to space travel of old. They, they really they really are. It's an incredibly exciting time over the next few years for space yeah. travel, I think. Yeah, I'm always bouncing up on my chair when I start talking about this. Fantastic to have you on and congratulations. That's an incredibly rich history, I think, for your company. Joe Burton there. Right, let's move on. Washington also marking the anniversary with this amazing tribute to the Apollo 11 mission. The Washington Monument lit up to look like a rocket blasting into space, complete with the Kennedy Center's countdown clock at the base, if you could see it. Incredible images. For two hours every day, I believe. I was very excited when I saw that. CNN's coverage of the 50th anniversary of the moon landing is just beginning. On Saturday, our Dr. Sanjay Gupta hosts the first steps with Michael Collins, one of the Apollo 11 astronauts. That's on at 8.30 a.m. in New York, 1.30 p.m. in London, right here on CNN. Don't miss that. I can tell you I will be watching. Out of money and out of time as the clock ticks down towards the summer holidays for U.S. lawmakers. Last-minute talks are on to keep funding the machinery of government. Stay with us. We've got the latest. To first move, the U.S. government is running out of money and there are just seven legislative days to fix it before the summer holidays begins. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin have been trying to find a solution. Lauren Fox is in Washington. Lauren, we should be clear, it's twin budget and debt ceiling negotiations and therein lies the key. What concessions is House Speaker Pelosi asking and is progress being made? Well, the fact that they have talked almost every day for the last week or so is really a promising sign. Another promising sign, they're starting to sort of expand who they're talking to about their conversations. You know, the fact that this is House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Steve Mnuchin reveals just how high level these talks are at this point. But yesterday, I saw Nita Lowy, who is the appropriations chairwoman, going into Pelosi's office. I'm told that there are conversations happening with top leaders. They're trying to make make sure that any agreement that Pelosi and Mnuchin would come to could be agreed upon by, of course, the president of the United States and Senate and Republicans and Democrats. So that's something to be watching, Julia, that's really positive. But I'm told that one of the key sticking points is over how to pay for a VA, the VA Mission Act, which passed in 2018. Essentially, it gives more money for veterans' health care. The question, of course, how do you pay for that? What bucket of money do you put it in? Does it come out of domestic spending or uh, defense spending. And that's been a key sticking point. They're still trying to figure that out. It's unclear exactly whether or not that's been figured out at this point, but that's just one of the key sticking points. And as you can imagine, when you're coming up with a massive budget and you're trying to come up with these top line numbers, there are more things beneath the surface that can come up and become distractions. So nothing's agreed to until this is agreed to wholly. And I think that that's what uh, all the negotiators are keeping their eye on at this point. But obviously, only a few legislative days before this congressional recess in August, whether or not this is all going to come together in time, given how much time it takes to actually put this budget deal together, is still pretty unclear. Julia? Yeah. Do you think, uh, Lauren, that lessons were learned earlier this year with the partial government shutdown? It hurt in terms of economics. It hurt in terms of politics for both the Democrats and the Republicans here. Do you think uh, calm heads prevail here and we do reach a deal? 
it's always hard to predict, you know, what the sticking points are going to be, whether it's going to be Republicans or Democrats. If you remember, just a couple of weeks ago, liberals in the Democratic Party were torn with their moderate colleagues over that border um, supplemental emergency deal that they had to come up with. So I think that another key sticking point that we're going to have to be looking at is whether any deal Nancy Pelosi comes up with with the administration can actually pass muster for some of the liberals in her caucus. You know, Democrats have the majority in the House, but they don't have that many votes. So is Nancy Pelosi going to be able to get both the liberals and the moderates in her caucus on board is still a big question. And that's before you get to whether or not Pelosi can agree with the Trump administration on an overall budget agreement. Julia? Yes. Laura Fox over in D.C. there. Thank you so much for that update. All right. So let me give you a look now at today's boardroom brief. Amazon made more sales during its Prime Day event than last year's Black Friday and Cyber Monday combined. It sold a total of 175 million products over the two-day sale this week. The event was open to Prime members in 18 different countries. Step aside, Bill Gates, the CEO of luxury goods maker LVMH, Bernard Arnault, is now the world's second richest person. He overtook Bill Gates on Tuesday with a net worth of around $108 billion. That's according to Bloomberg's Billionaires Index. Amazon's Jeff Bezos, of course, still holds the number one spot. Wow. Imagine how much trouble you could get into with $108 billion. And you could do a lot of good as well, which, of course, is what Bill Gates has done to the tune of $35 billion, I believe. All right. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing for the markets this morning, of course. Still trading very close to record highs. Keep an eye on what we're seeing right now. Pretty much unchanged summer markets. I think that's the broader point here. But plenty of earnings to come this week and next, of course, to keep an eye on for now. All right. That just about wraps up the show. You can also listen to our podcast if you go to cnn.com slash podcast. If you can't wait until tomorrow, of course, you can listen to the show again. But for now, I'm Julia Chesley. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.